Please turn in your copies of the scriptures, if you wish, to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel in the 15th chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. I'd like to ask Daniel Marsh to pray God's blessing upon this time. Second Samuel 15, verses 1 through 6. And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had a suit which should come to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man made deputy of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man who hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Let us pray. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> Absalom, the consummate politician, coming before the people with much pomp and ceremony, as much as he possibly could garner, coming in the guise, if you will, of the king, being a son of the king, and yet the other sons, if you'll remember, they were all satisfied with riding on mules. But here comes Absalom making his grand entrance. Does that remind you of anyone? Does it remind you of any particular individuals? It's hard not to think about Rome, but I'm not going to look at Rome anymore this Lord's Day. But surely we have something of a picture. Not that anyone is suggesting that Rome is political at all, but we have this picture of Absalom setting himself forward, attracting attention. Politicians do that, do they not? Politicians may not have chariots, but they have limousines. They may not have 50 men to run before them, but they probably have many more than 50 running around them. And they make their entrance known, and they like to come and and to receive attention 
to be an attraction. So Absalom comes in this manner. He comes in the manner of one that deserves attention. He certainly desires it. This is politics at its best, or maybe we should say at its worst, and yet we're familiar with it. We recognize it. He rose up early even, giving something of, a, of an impression of being a disciplined individual. But he's not disciplined whatever in things that are important. He's not disciplined in the matter of being a faithful son to his father. He's not disciplined in the matter of giving God honor and glory. He's not disciplined in those things that are most important. But he gives the impression by arriving early at the gate. He gives an impression of discipline. How many of our politicians strive and struggle perhaps to put on airs of being wonderful disciplinarians they strive and they struggle in order to set forth a picture of how secure they are in their own minds and in their own opinions. One writer simply said of Absalom, here is a clever and unscrupulous politician at work. Absalom coming in much pomp and ceremony. Absalom was his name and duplicity was his game. Duplicity, deceitfulness in speech or action, or both, of course. An expert at duplicity. He says what, he, what the people want to hear, though. Keep that in mind as we look at this passage. I had intended to go this morning to the next paragraph, and in my preparation, I was thrown back to this paragraph once again. And I think that the largest reason, I trust, of course, that the greatest reason was that the Lord directed me to do so. But in light of the passage itself, and in consideration of, of the teaching here that's set before us, the thing that attracted my Retraction, if you will, was this whole idea of these, the sixth verse, telling us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom asked these men, we just read, of what city are you? And when they told him, Absalom said, and evidently they told him some of the reasons that they were there at the gate. The gate was the place, you remember, of judgment. And so Absalom would say to them, See, thy matters are good, and thy matters are right. But there is no man, and here he's throwing allegations at his father, at the king. There's no man made deputy of the king to be here and hear thee, but here am I. I'm, I'm willing to hear you. And he says, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man who hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. Is that not what politicians do? They're going to fix everything. They're going to satisfy every cause, every need, every desire, every wish. They try to play both ends against the middle. 
Absalom had to be doing this because he obviously couldn't satisfy everyone because some of the suits were mutually exclusive. The desires were against one another. They were going like this. How do you settle that? How is a politician today going to attract the, the, the voters, the, the peace, people that are engaged in women against gun violence, how are they going to attract their vote without having a problem with the NRA, for example? And yet politicians will try their best to walk in the middle and to satisfy both. Absalom was claiming that he would be able to do this. Oh, that I were made judge in the land. I would satisfy your wishes and desires. I would bring to a good resolution the suit that you have, the petition that you're bringing. And it was so that when any man came nigh to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. Makes you think of baby kissers in, in the political realm today, of course. Picking up babies uh, and, and befriending everyone and, and pretending that, that they love everyone and so on. Absalom is, is excellent in this and he's making this pretext. But we're told in that last verse again, and on this manner, with all this, this manner of Absalom doing this to all Israel that came to him, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole their hearts. We understand, I believe, we understand what is intended here when it says that he stole the hearts. But what came to my mind and heart as I was looking at this again this week was he didn't really steal the hearts of the men of Israel. Properly speaking, they were for sale. The hearts of these men of Israel were for sale. And yes, he bought them. And we could say it in this metaphorical way that he stole the hearts because he was willing to at least claim to give them what they wanted. But the hearts of these men were for sale. And they listened to what he had to say. They listened to him when he criticized the king. Is that not what politicians are doing today? Are they not each trying to be the greatest, the most high in their criticism of the present administration, of the present president, of the presumed opponent? They all try to be up at the top of their game as far as criticizing. And they have very little detail, very little to offer about how they would accomplish what they claim they're going to accomplish. And in this manner, Absalom bought the hearts of the men of Israel. He says what the people want to hear. In scriptural language, he tickles their ears, their itching ears, does he not? We read in 1 Timothy, Paul's words, for the time will come, Paul said, when they will not endure the sound doctrine. They're not interested in the truth. They want their itching ears to be tickled. They're not interested in the truth. What have you got for me? 
We lived for a number of years on the outskirts of Detroit, Michigan, and there was a mayor in Detroit for, I believe, he, I know he had at least four terms, if not a fifth. Why did the people keep voting this man back in again and again and again and again? Everyone was pretty convinced that he was a crook. But the thing is, he was their crook. And he went to Washington, whether physically or, or by phone or whatever. He went to Washington and he got handouts for the people of the city of Detroit. And that's why they kept voting him back in. And it's still the same today. Maybe not as obvious as that. But it's still the same today. And Absalom was plying this trade very well. But Paul said that they will not endure. A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust. Will heap to themselves people that say what they want to hear and that do what they want to see done. And they'll turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto fables. They will turn their ears away from the truth. I believe that's what these men in this passage have done. They've turned their ears away from the truth. And that's very dangerous. And it's so prevalent in our land. In the church, it's so prevalent. People want to hear what makes them feel good. They want to do what makes them feel good. They want to play games. They want to have programs. And they want to hear how good they are. They want to hear. They want to have their ears tickled. They don't want to hear the truth. These are fables, to use Paul's word. These are fables that they're turning aside to. They don't want the truth. One famous man said, you can fool some of the people all of the time. And all of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. I'm not so sure about that. It seems to me that this individual fooled almost all the people all the time. That's a subjective opinion, I grant. But there are people that are happy to be fooled all of the time. And it just seems like that that number has escalated. And certainly all the people that want things done their way. Like those in Detroit years ago. Not that that's changed. But that those in Detroit years ago continued to vote for that particular man to be their mayor. They're happy to be fooled all the time. Absalom was perhaps something of a very early prototype for a 21st century American politician. He told the people what they wanted to hear. And he ran his, <clears throat> their king. Now we've been told and reminded a number of a times, a number of times over the years, of how guilty we are as far as speaking badly of our president, of our officers. 
and so on. And you know what I'm talking about, that we are, not to, we are to honor the king, the scriptures tell us. And we are guilty if we get involved in ridiculing, if we get involved in, in mindless criticism and so on. I only mention that to say that here's what Absalom was doing, and it was much, much different in those days. The king was a whole lot more to those people than the president of the United States is to his people today. It wasn't such a casual thing to criticize the king. It wasn't such a casual and, 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 and easy thing to imply or to even state outright that the king is doing wrong, that he's not doing right by you. And yet here is this politician Absalom speaking ill of the king, speaking ill of his father. Do we read of anyone saying, you shouldn't talk that way about the king? God has set him on that throne. You shouldn't speak that way about your father. What about the commandments, Absalom, to honor your father and mother? We don't have any suggestion, whatever, that these men did that, but they sold their hearts. To Absalom for whatever they imagined, whatever they believed that he might give to them in order that they would give him, sell him their hearts. What are our presidential candidates promising? Is it not the same thing? They will do better? They will do better than our president? Absalom saying, I'll do better. Give me a chance in the Oval Office and I'll straighten everything out. Everything's going to be wonderful if you only give me your vote. They say anything, but they offer very few details. They keep it all murky and everything so that they don't have, perhaps, the potential votes from the NRA clashing with the potential votes for those who are opposed to gun ownership and so on. They play the middle. Absalom was offering no details. He was saying that he would, if they would put him in David's place, he would give them what they wanted. And he was bad-mouthing his father, to use a colloquialism. He was bad-mouthing his own father. He was bad-mouthing the king, the incumbent ruler of Israel. He was bringing charges against him, actually. Is that not what we see in the language here? Well, he didn't even send a deputy here. He's failing you. It's terrible. He was saying that if they would put him in that place, he would give them what they wanted. And he was implicitly bringing charges against the present king. But he had no witnesses. He didn't bring any proof of his assertions, of his allegations. He had no witnesses. He had no proof of dereliction of duty. He just simply made the charges. And as long as the poll numbers went up, he kept on making them. When any man came to the gate, Absalom said, See, thy matters are good and right. 
Oh, that I were made judge in the land. If I were only made judge in the land, I would satisfy all your complaints, all your suits would be made right if I were only put upon the throne. He told them what they wanted to hear. Like those persons in Luke 16, that unjust steward account. You remember the account of the unjust steward that was caught with his hand in the money bag, to put it that way, caught with his hand in the till, and the master said he was going to get rid of him. So what did the unjust steward say, in effect? He said, I can't go out and work physically. What am I going to do if I'm put out of my position? I've got to go make friends of these people that owe money to the king, to my lord. So he went around and he said, how much do you owe? And they told him, and he said, well, change it to this and mark it down. And he went to, we're told about a few that he went to and did that. Surely those people knew what he was doing. Surely they knew that it wasn't just for this man to be changing the amount of the debt. But they went along with it, didn't they? Why? Why? Because it was gain for them. And that's what these people that Absalom is enticing. They see gain for them if Absalom is brought to the throne. Surely they knew he was doing wrong. Surely they knew he was speaking wrong. Just as surely as those individuals knew that that unjust steward was doing wrong. Is this not what each campaigner is crying? Like Absalom, oh, that I were made president, that I were put in the Oval Office, then I would do such and such. I would do such and such. Absalom, slandering his father, slandering the king. Matthew Henry said very pithily, is that a word? Pithily. But he said this, generally, that which aims at the crown aims at the head that wears it. I couldn't help but apply that to Christ. Think, think about those that, that mock Christ, that mocked him in the days gone by and that mock him today. Remind them, perhaps, if you're given a chance, that which aims at the crown aims at the head that wears it. Absalom, of course, was aiming at the crown as well as also aiming at the head that wore it, wanting to knock the crown off. His desire was to place his father on the throne. He wished to be king in Israel himself. None of these men seemed to even consider his unfitness. If justice had been done, he would have been executed. And then as we saw last time, he had gone and burned the barley field of David's general. Surely they saw his unfitness. And yet, they believe that he is going to be able, that he will do, that he will meet the promises that he's making. Just like many people believe politicians today. I hear people complaining about this candidate, that candidate, he, she, whatever. And they're acting like how terrible. 
I don't see how terrible they are. What I see is a terrible electorate. Like these men. That's the problem, isn't it? People don't vote on principle. They don't follow on principle. It's whoever will scratch their itching ears. Whoever will give them a handout of some sort. David's son wrote in Proverbs 18, verse 17, these words that strike me every time I read them. He that pleadeth his cause first seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him out. Absalom's pleading his cause first, and we don't hear of another cause being pleaded. Absalom pleaded his, and these men accepted it. They didn't even ask to have it searched out. But we ought to weigh things out when we hear something. We ought to weigh things out. We ought to search things out like the Bereans. Even the preaching of the great apostle Paul. They searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And yet, how much do we receive? How much do our ears take in without question, without searching, without weighing? We ought to search these things out to the law and the testimony. If they speak not according to this truth, there's no light in them. Behave like the Bereans. Justice requires a fair hearing of both sides of a question. Not just, wow, does that sound good? And they just blank out everything else. Well, that man may be right, but he's not likely to get the nomination or he's not likely to win the office. So I'm going to go with this guy that, that I think might be able to win or her that might be able to win. Pragmatism overwhelms principle so often. We need to weigh things out. We need to search things out. How often are we guilty of this? How often are you and I guilty of this? We behave just like those coming to the gate and being mesmerized by the wiles of someone like Absalom, by his promises, by his giving us a kiss. What about gossip? What about gossip? Things that we hear, do we carelessly pass them on without ever searching them out? In most cases, even if we knew they were true and even if we searched them out and found that they were true, they don't need to and they shouldn't be passed on. There are occasions, there are exceptions. I think of Paul saying, remember Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. And for the sake of the people of God, he passed that on. But it's not always to be done. Exodus 23.1 says, Thou shalt not take up a false report. Isn't that what gossip is? Taking up a false report? Thou shalt not take up a false report. Proverbs again. In chapter 17 of Proverbs, again we read, David's son, if he wrote this particular proverb, but listen, an evildoer, in verse 4 of 17, an evildoer giveth heed to wicked lips. 
You listen to something like that. You listen to gossip. You listen to false stories. You listen to accusations. You are an evildoer according to this. An evildoer gives heed to these wicked lips. And a liar giveth ear to a mischievous tongue. You make yourself a liar by receiving a lie without searching it out, without weighing it. In the, earlier in the Proverbs, in chapter 6, these astounding words, I hope they're as astounding to you as to, they, they have been to myself. At verse 16 of chapter 6, there are six things which Jehovah hateth. Shouldn't that make us stand up? There are six things that Jehovah hateth. Well, I don't want to engage in any of those. Yea, seven which are an abomination unto him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked purposes, feet that are swift in running to mischief. Well, I won't do any of that. Well, how about this? A false witness that uttereth lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. Is that not what gossip is going to do? Surely it is. And how often have the people of God been mistreated and maligned by rumor and what amounts to gossip? How often has it been the case that only one side of a story was heard? Have you ever noticed this in the account of Joseph being put in prison? I think we all know that account pretty well. But did you realize when you read it or when you considered it that Joseph was never given any opportunity to defend himself? Potiphar's wife, and it's understandable, he was probably henpecked. It's understandable, but it's not right. She told him that Joseph had accosted her. And he did not give Joseph a chance it's not recorded that Joseph had any opportunity to defend himself but was thrown into jail. How often does that sort of thing happen? Remember the Jews in Esther's day when Haman came to the king and criticized the Jews and told them that they, they were subversive and they wanted to uh, take over his kingdom and so on. Did the king search it out? No, he didn't. He did not, but he signed on the dotted line Haman's design to exterminate the Jews. He signed it. Haman pleaded his cause first, and Ahasuerus believed it to be just, and he signed that document. We witness a much different outcome in the case of Paul in Acts 24 when he was standing before Festus, and this orator came. When I see orator, and when I see what he, what he did, this Tertullus, I think of a lawyer immediately. They're orators, are they not? They come to, to set a case before the, the judge, or the king in this case, before Festus. But it didn't go entirely against Paul, did it? When this man laid down all these charges and included all, all the Jews that were opposed to Paul in these charges. 
the king said, nevertheless, he said to Paul, he beckoned him to speak. He beckoned Paul to speak. What is your side of this? He gave him an opportunity to speak. He would hear the other side of the matter. That's what we need to be careful about doing. And many times we need to just close our ear and not even consider the matter. Moses wrote the rule of God on this matter in Deuteronomy a number of times in 17.6 and in 19.15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth at the mouth of two witnesses, or even better, three, shall a matter be established. Christ referred to this rule of law in Matthew 18, of course. But if he hear thee not, bring two witnesses, or three, in the matter of an issue in the church. And Paul cites in 2 Corinthians 13.1, this rule that God gave us through Moses, two or three witnesses. And again, Paul in 1 Timothy 5.19, against an elder receive not an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. How often, how sadly has this rule been either forgotten or ignored? in the church of Jesus Christ. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul is saying, according to some commentators, Paul is saying, don't even receive the accusation without witnesses. It's not like that you should receive an accusation that you should even give it a hearing if there aren't any witnesses. You shouldn't even hear it. You shouldn't even receive it. Paul is saying... You shouldn't even consider it. There need to be two or three witnesses to warrant your consideration even. You shouldn't even hear the accusation. Receive it not. Ask that individual who may be bringing the accusation, where are your two or three witnesses? And if he doesn't have two or three witnesses, then turn him away and turn your ear off. Don't even receive it. There's not to be any investigation begun at the mouth of one individual. There's to be nothing done apart from witnesses. Is this not a fine, God-given rule of law and justice and righteousness? Absalom questioned his father's integrity, his father's ability to rule. And he was one person, and these men gave heed. These men listened. Absalom had many reasons to be prejudiced toward himself and partial toward himself. He had a big stake in the matter and oftentimes that's going to be the case when accusations are brought against anyone, any child of God, any elder. There may very well be ill motives and so on and so forth, just like Absalom's ill motives. And these accusations should not even receive a hearing. David's situation is very much like the elders to which Paul has reference. 
They, like David, are appointed to God, of God to their office. They, like David, stand in an extremely vulnerable place, subject to the jealousies, perhaps, the prejudices of others, likely to be misunderstood as David may have been. It is very likely that many of David's judgments displeased many. There's that issue. And it is likely, at least possible, that the preaching of some elders today may often displease many. I didn't like him saying that about my favorite sin. I didn't like him saying that about my favorite person. And on and on. You can imagine the different possibilities. An irritated, offended member of the body may be inclined to get even by making accusation. If they don't have two or three witnesses, turn off the ear. Don't even institute any sort of investigation whatever. So Paul lays down the rules. He tells young Timothy, don't even entertain a charge unless it's supported by witnesses. This is a directive from the judgment of an absolutely holy God. And yes, there are, if it's coming to your mind, there are such things as false witnesses and God in Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19 tells us how to deal or tells those people in that day how to deal with it. And good would it be, I think, that if this were applied in some way today, that if somebody brings a false charge, they don't just get charged for perjury and given 90 days suspended sentence and a $500 fine, but that they serve the punishment that they sought to bring upon the individual that they falsely testified against. You remember Naboth in his vineyard that Ahab wanted and that Jezebel, his wicked wife, conspired to get for him. And what did she do? She used two witnesses. Yes, there's such a thing as false witnesses. But there are abuses by sinful men of every law and rule in the scriptures. That doesn't make the rule wrong. It just proves that men are sinners. And those two witnesses came forward and, and, and spoke against Naboth. And it ended up in his judgment and execution. What does that remind you of? So it was with our Lord Jesus Christ, condemned of men, false witnesses, and executed the two false witnesses that we read about in Matthew 26 and in the other parallel accounts and the other synoptics. The high priest asked, what is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. For our sakes, he held his peace. Somebody wrote some kind of a song I heard years ago. I'm, I'm just as glad probably that I haven't heard it in a long time. But it, the chorus was, he didn't come down. He didn't come down. You know, the people said, if you're God, why don't you come down now? If, like Satan, if you are the son of God. If you are God, come down. In, the, in this chorus, they say he didn't come down. They point out that he could have, but he didn't come down. He could have spoken against these witnesses. Him who is the truth incarnate could have spoken against these witnesses, but he held his peace. 
he was persecuted in the same way by false witnesses as others may be. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime and see how often this has been replayed in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ, in the children of God, how often false witnesses have been brought against God's people in order to condemn them to the stake or to the pit or to the, to the river to drown them and so on and so forth. How often, and even as God has special direction in the scriptures for false witnesses, I suspect that he probably has a special place for them in hell as well. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. I know God is merciful and all forgiving and so on, but it's still hard to imagine that those false witnesses against the Son of God ever found peace with God through Jesus Christ, the one that they had condemned. Let us reflect often on those words of Solomon. He that pleadeth his cause first seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him out. Jesus Christ will be the neighbor to come and search out every false witness. He is also the one who will, according to the 139th Psalm, when David cries out, Search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way. Christ has been appointed judge, and he will judge what we have received in our ears. There's that awful danger if we receive it into our ears of it finding a way into our hearts. We're just sinful men. Be careful what you hear, little ears. The ditty goes. And that, that is an excellent caution, not just for children, but for adults, for the people of God. Be careful what you hear. And again, I repeat, don't receive it without witnesses. Put your hand up if somebody starts to tell you a story. We've all been guilty of not doing that. It's not easy to put your hand in somebody's face, but that's what needs to be done sometimes, brother and sister. I don't want to hear that story. And if you do hear it accidentally, maybe you didn't get your hand up fast enough or whatever, by all means, don't repeat it. Ask God to shut it out of your thoughts and memory and don't repeat it. Remember, almost the very last verse in the scriptures in Revelation 2, I mean Revelation 22 and verses 14 and 15. All those written in the Lamb's book of life, all those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb coming into that place, that beautiful eternal city, but what are kept out? Oh, these terrible fornicators, these terrible drunkards, and those that make and love a lie. Is it stretching too far to say that those that love a lie are represented by people that listen to Absalom? By people that listen to those false witnesses against Naboth, that people that listen to those false witnesses 
against our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, help us. Help us, Father. Not only put a guard about our the gates of our lips, but about our ears, oh Lord God. We ask for thy glory, for the building up of the church, for the exaltation of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Just stand, <coughs> stand please, for the benediction it's found this morning. It's found in those beautiful words in Isaiah 25, verses 6 and 8. And in this mountain will Jehovah of hosts make unto all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. He has swallowed up death forever, and the Lord Jehovah will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the reproach of his people will he take away from off all the earth. For Jehovah has spoken it. Amen.